Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello everyone, this is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about different things related to blame and excuse making and victimhood and some of the fears that affect us. Last week, we talked about different types of fear, healthy fear and unhealthy fear. And today I want to talk about a level of fear that I find can cripple the mindset. And that fear is anxiety. Anxiety is a very interesting topic. It's a very contentious topic. And I enter this conversation with trepidation because we have so many different viewing points about anxiety. And I think it's because we have so many different amphoras for the word anxiety. And when we have a conversation about anxiety, we really need to be clear about what we're talking about specifically because it has so many different meanings to so many different people. So I think it's important that we end up processing that out because there's a value in having the conversation. And it's very hard to find conversations about this because it is a difficult thing to talk about because the word has so many different connotations and so many different meanings to so many different people. So there's a risk there in offending people because of what you might say. And you're really talking about something that is not offensive, but the person hears it as offensive and they might say something that's offensive that maybe isn't really, but because we hear it that way, we are offended. And it leads to some contentions that can be difficult to get through. So one of the things I do in the spirit of making it contentious is when it comes to the topic of anxiety, I like to ask a tough question. And Brian, I want to ask that question of you. Is anxiety a choice? Well, thanks for having me back on the podcast. <laughs> I love to get on and have a conversation about anxiety <laughs> any day of the week. I do see the controversy in this topic. To get right to your question, I do not think that anxiety is a choice. I think that the choosing comes in when you respond to anxiety that is spontaneous. So just like a headache is not a choice, just like arthritis is not a choice, just like gout is not a choice, just like depression, many conditions, I don't think people choose these things. I think that they happen, and then you have to respond to how it happens. So it's kind of like you can't control the weather, but you can plant trees for shade and you can build a shelter from the storm. That would be the metaphor that I would use for anxiety and even other emotions, too. You can't control your emotions, but your emotions don't have to control you. So you can't necessarily stop anxiety. You don't have to suffer under persistent anxiety. I believe that there are choices that you can make to, as we like to use the word, mitigate or attempt to lessen the suffering of anxiety. It's interesting when you talk about, is anxiety a choice? You say, no, I don't think it's a choice. And then what I would ask you to consider is, 
And rightly so, you mentioned how we respond to the situations that occur in our life. If anxiety is not a situation, it's certainly a response to situations. So I think one of the clarities I'd like to make is, is that anxiety as a word is not a situation. It's a response to a situation, a situation that might not be going well for you, a situation that creates conflict for you, a situation like a disease or situation of not getting into college, situation of not knowing about your future. These are situations and anxiety is a response. And if we in fact have a choice in how we respond to the situations in our life, anxiety is in fact a response. So when I look up anxiety in the thesaurus and the dictionary, some of the other words that kind of, as we historically look at the word anxious or anxiety, it's uncertainty, it's apprehension. Very commonly, it's worry. Whenever I ask people what anxiety is, most people say it's worry. Worry about the past, worry about the present, worry about the future. Anxiety is fear, it's apathy, it's nervousness, it's panic, it's apprehension. Through my experiences, I've found that anxiousness is a result of indecisiveness. And interestingly enough, indecisiveness oftentimes is a result of anxiety and results in anxiety. So Brian, how do you feel about that? Is anxiousness indecisiveness and does this indecisiveness result in anxiety? Well, I don't know if this applies as a rule. I think it might be a generality and it might be different for everybody. So I think that indecisiveness has got to be a contributing factor to a lot of people's anxiousness. There's no question about that. Yeah, I definitely have found that to be true. And I think a lot of people's anxiety is because they have a difficult time deciding. They get confused and they don't know and they're looking for direction and they're wanting to be told how to do something and that ability to do it may not be there. So we get anxious about our inability to do things, and oftentimes it leads to indecisiveness. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think that's true for a lot of people. And it's like if you could get organized and sequential and progress, you might mitigate some of your anxiety. I don't think that they're indecisiveness. It's the only thing that's causing people anxiety. There's probably lots of things that pile up that add up to create feelings of anxiety. In my kind of research of that word, I found that the root an or ang is related to anger. So like anxiety and anger share the same root word. And there's lots of words in Greek and in Old English that have that A-N-G sound. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of those words that you've probably heard many times, you've seen so many patients in your dental office over the years is the term angina, which is tightening of the chest. Yes. Which you probably see this, you know, in patients Mm -hmm. who have COPD, that's like the main issue with COPD, right? Is your chest feels tight. Yes. And that relates to like, I think a Greek word that literally means to narrow or choke or be throttled. So I thought that was really interesting. The root word of anxiety relates to this angst, anger, or a tightening of oneself, and not being able to be at ease in situations that are confusing.
confusing or panic-inducing or remind you of some trauma. I don't think people elect to lose that control over themselves. And I think people would usually choose to be at ease if they had the power to be at ease. So it's like if you're being presented with anxiety, you kind of have to say, how do I unpack this feeling so that I can feel more at ease when situations arise that cause me anxiety? One of the things that I find that has really distorted the understanding and the use of the word anxiety and the feeling of anxiety and having that be a part of our conversation and how we relate to other people and how we function is, I always ask this question, are these three words mean the same thing? Is anxiousness, anxiety, and anxiety disorder, are all three of those the same thing? Or are they different? And I think most people merely don't consider the difference of those three words. When I say that I'm anxious, do I mean I'm anxious because of my own doing? Like when I put off doing my homework or doing projects around the house or at work and it all piles up to the point where it's overwhelming? Or am I anxious because I can't get a job? You know, there's not enough money at the end of the month to pay the bills. Or is this a medical disorder that requires medication and therapy? And I think there's a point where some people say, well, I have anxiety. Well, does that mean do they have an anxiety disorder that's medically diagnosed? Or does that mean they're just fearful or worrying about something? And there's a difference between a medically diagnosed anxiety disorder, even though we just refer it as I have anxiety, But is that the same thing as someone else saying, I have anxiety because I'm worried about something? I think we get confused by that. And that's why oftentimes when somebody throws these terms out, we're not sure what they're talking about. Yeah. So is anxiety a medical condition or is it a feeling we have that emerges by our own doing as we face the challenges of life? It's a huge question. Right. And I'll definitely buy that. I think people maybe misname their experience. So anxiety could be more of a term for something that requires extra steps to deal with, whereas overwhelmed or stressed are better words for the daily experience of being a problem solver. Yeah. I think it's interesting when I've done research on this because of the multitude of questions I have when I bring this topic up because everyone just kind of has their very strong opinions about it. And many of the listeners have strong opinions about it. One of the things that I did to kind of try to figure this out a little bit more why this is the way it is. And I found this 2020 article in the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's Journal. And they did a historical recap on the status of their association, the birth of it, and how it's emerged and come to be what it is today. And this gives some context to us thinking about anxiety as a choice or a feeling or an emotion, or is it a medical disorder? And the article basically, quote, today we recognize anxiety disorder as a common mental health disorder. It is easy to forget how far our views have come since the first phobia meeting was held in 1978 in White Plains, New York. The term anxiety disorder had not yet been coined. 
most of what we identified as anxiety disorders were and still are called phobias, end of quote. It's interesting that the term anxiety disorder never even existed until just almost 50 years now. At this initial meeting of the newly informed Phobia Society of America, because the Anxiety and Depression Association of America was initially named Phobia Society of America. And phobia is Greek for fear. So Phobia Society of America then changed its name in 1978. And it became clear to the psychologists in that organization attending, they wanted to make this anxiety disorder diagnosis more mainstream. And it was really out of their intention to really get medical insurance companies to pay for the care they gave people. So if a psychologist met with a person at an hour session, the person paid for the hour session. And when the medical insurance came out after existing for 20 years or so, the psychologists were saying, hey, we want to tap into this resource where people can come to us and talk to us about their feelings and emotions and issues they're having in their life, which is very valuable. But instead of them paying for it out of their pocket, let's see if we can get the insurance companies to pay for it. So the psychologist attempted to quantify the symptoms of this phobia. They standardized the protocols in response to this rising trend of anxiety-related symptoms. And it only took a few years for it to become recognized as a medical disorder and a medical billing diagnosis code was assigned to it, which is key to getting it covered by an insurance company, as well as treatment codes for the newly created protocols to treat the affliction. When you look at this motivation between psychologists and their associations was to get their therapy sessions paid for from medical insurance companies. Yes, they were there also to help people, but many people didn't have the funds to do it, and they wanted the insurance companies to pay for it. This was no different to the dental groups. When I started to practice, dental insurance was not available. Medical insurance was. Dental insurance was not. And we saw the boom that medical insurance brought to the medical industry. So dentists as associations, they went ahead and started to create dental insurance companies, and then other insurance companies got on board to include dental benefits. This later happened with chiropractors. Chiropractors did the same thing. They ended up getting the insurance companies to recognize codes and to get payment for. So the psychologists were doing the same thing that we all were doing is tapping into this financial resource to get things paid for. And it became a boom for psychologists as it was for dentists and chiropractors. I know you're a lot younger than I am, but I remember a day when psychologists were very rare and there wasn't many around. But then when this response to getting this transformation from getting the medical insurance to pay for it really changed that dynamic considerably. This is a tough thing for people to hear, but I believe that many of us have difficulty mitigating anxiety in our life because we conflate medically diagnosed anxiety, commonly known today as anxiety disorder, with fear-based anxiety, which is anxiety that emanates from the challenges of living life. Delineating the word anxiety into two distinct amphora is one way to have a breakthrough in your understanding and make the conversation less contentious. And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. What do you think? Do you think this makes it more contentious or less contentious? I think that some of our audience might know what the word amphora means, but some of them might not. 
and I've not heard that before, that idea of the board or whatever you want to call it, of psychologists dealing with phobias and stuff like that. I've never heard that story before, but that's very interesting. When I hear conflicts of interest like that, I'm always stumped because people who are practicing medicine and trying to help people or are helping people ought to be compensated. And yet it's also frightening to have a financial motivator to maybe solve problems that aren't there or maybe aren't as robust as we make them out to be. And then to see how just the existence of that in medical culture can kind of affect the broader culture. That's all very interesting. Well, before 1978, there was not clarity in the distinction of what anxiety was. If it was just a phobia, then there's a lot of things that we could be fearful about. But by changing the name from a phobia to an anxiety disorder and then identifying the symptomology that went with it, that allowed it to get a diagnosis code, which then allowed it to get a benefit coverage. So it was a sequence of events that had to occur. Now, that doesn't mean that psychologists were not treating people before they had medical insurance covering it. They, in fact, were. Right. It's just that it greased the wheels, if you will, and really made it become a mainstream concern for people and a mainstream therapeutic process of going to the psychologist, having your benefits pay for it, which is all good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. However, what happens is it causes us to have a conflation between when is anxiety of our own doing just because we aren't doing what we need to be doing to get on with our life, just handling the challenges of life, and when it is that actually a chemical issue in our brain that we need some psychotropic medications to help us through it. And I'm saying that definitely exists. However, do we use the word anxiety as an excuse for us not being able to handle some of the things in our life and everyone says, oh, anxiety, oh yeah, I understand that. Do you take medication for it? Well, we started to see in the early 80s, teachers who couldn't handle the unruly kids in school started recommending Ritalin to their parents. And you start saying, wait a minute, now teachers are not medically trained and they're recommending Ritalin because they want their kids to be calmed down to make their jobs easier and they have more sanity in their classroom. So they start recommending to parents to go to your psychologist and get Ritalin for your kid. So this became kind of an issue that just kind of like a snowball effect. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people now have used it as an excuse to not have to deal with the issues in their life. But they still have to deal with the issues in their life. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to use that exact example as something to kind of juxtapose your anxiety thesis about how the whole attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder is a contemporary construction. You know, it's a made up thing for a real thing, but it's a real thing that I think is being misunderstood. I mean, in a lot of situations, ADHD is just a different word for boyhood. You know, I mean, boys are hyperactive. Little boys do not want to pay attention to things they don't want to pay attention to. And that's actually natural. So I think having a fear response 
into dangerous situations or having trauma that then leaves you with a persistent fear response to certain triggers, you know, that's a natural thing. And so to mislabel that and create this whole cottage industry around where the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company are trying to treat this thing that may be able to have alternate methodologies for handling these sorts of things. I think that's a whole big conversation, but it's definitely a part of our reality. Yeah. Well, we choose how we want to approach that. Yeah. And also we've seen this in medicine, not just in this area, but other areas that medicine oftentimes has come to a point where we try on medications and say, okay, you have this problem, you have this problem, you have that problem. Let's give you this pill and see how it works. Then if that doesn't work, we'll give you another pill. If that doesn't work, then we'll give you another pill. So we've kind of gotten to this point where pharmacology and the prescription of medications oftentimes is given as the way to quickly get the patient outside of the office and not have to do as extensive testing that we'd sometimes consider when we just look at it and say, hmm, I think this pill will help you. Let's take this and let's move on and see how it helps. And there's not a lot of side effects, so it'll be okay. And I think our tendency to do that in the medical field and we're encouraged to do it, unfortunately, by the insurance companies and the time frames that they are giving us to care for people. When you look at some of my physician friends that say they have to see a patient, you know, years ago, I'd say, oh, we spent an hour with a patient and they'd tell me they're spending 30 minutes with a patient and then they're spending 15 minutes with a patient and they're spending seven minutes with a patient, now four minutes with a patient before they give them a pill and send them out the door. The pressures financially to do that are great, and it's unfortunate. And many physician friends of mine have quit the profession because that has gone just too far. And that's a little side conversation that really doesn't tie into what we're talking about, but it does indirectly. And I think that the important thing here as we look at anxiety is to recognize that there are certainly legitimate medically diagnosed anxieties. I wish there was another word for it instead of anxiety, a medically diagnosed issue, which right now it's called anxiety disorder. I wish there was another word because it gets confused with the fear-based anxiety that I want to talk about because I'm not here to talk about medically diagnosed anxiety because that's real. And if you have it, you need to stay on your medication. You need to continue to see your physician. You continue to see your psychologist continue to see your caregivers that are supporting you to get through this diagnosis and this issue. That's very clear. However, there's many people who see anxiety as an excuse, and I see that as a fear-based anxiety, which really just comes with the tough, hard knocks of life that we all have to face and we all have to do better with. I believe that anxiety is used as an excuse, and we use it as an excuse when we put off things that we agreed to do. I think we use it as an excuse when we don't want to take personal responsibility for something and we blame somebody else and make excuses instead of taking personal responsibility for what we have done. I think we get anxious when we are presumptuous and we think we know when we don't know instead of asking questions and getting clarity. We make decisions about some things that may not be true, and oftentimes they're not. And we get anxious about it, and it's an untruth because we were presumptuous in our conclusion. I think when we value judge other people and value judge ourselves, that's a source of anxiety for us. I think a big source of anxiety for people is when we fall short of meeting the expectations that others have of us. 
So oftentimes we live our lives meeting the expectations of others, whether we're meeting the expectations of our parents, we're meeting the expectations of our teachers, we're meeting the expectations of our spouse, we're meeting the expectations of our boss, we're meeting the expectations of our social group, we're meeting the expectations of our friends. And instead of us living out our life based on our own expectations about what we really believe and what we really value and what's most important to us, and living out that way, we have a tendency to live out the expectations that other people have of us. Well, frankly, a lot of times we don't do real well. Sometimes we fail at those expectations and that can create a lot of anxiety. I see that as a huge source of anxiety today. And it's an anxiety of our own doing because we have decided that we're going to live a life of meeting the expectation of other people. That's a choice that we have when we meet the expectation of others. So if we're anxious about it, well, we made that choice. I think that's one of the things we do when we try to meet the expectations of others. We look for their approval and their praise. And if we fail to get it, that's an anxious feeling. So when we're rejected or don't get someone else's approval, we also find ourselves getting anxious. So this is the kind of anxiety I'm talking about, Brian, not the medically diagnosed anxiety. These are anxiety created within us by our own doing. And in that way, I feel anxiety is a choice. Well, I think we can use different words. I'd love to. We can call these things frustrations. I mean, there's no confrontation required, but it's like when my kids, something happens, and I try to let them rage pretty hard. I let them climb trees. I let them do things because that's what they want to do. And there's only one way that they're going to learn to take care when doing those things. And that's kind of a trial by fire thing, I guess. So when things happen, I'll say, are you hurt or are you injured? And they'll be like, both. <laughs> I'm, I'm injured. And then you realize, no, 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 you're not injured. You just hurt yourself. And I heard that question on one of the podcasts that I listened to. So to me, it's like if you're talking to someone who's saying, I'm anxious, you say, are you anxious or are you just frustrated? Yeah. Or do you feel behind schedule? Or are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you feeling disorganized? Because you might not be feeling anxious. You're just feeling the stress of being frustrated, being disorganized, having a bad commute that morning on your way to work. And you're just using the wrong term using the word anxiety instead of a better word. Well, I think anxiety is a great word. I wish we could reserve it for fear-based anxiety. However, it was hijacked back 50, 60 years ago by this medical community, and they threw disorder after the end of it, anxiety disorder. It's been hijacked by them as a means of processing through the condition that needs to be processed through in the form of a diagnosis, therapies, and then payment for those therapies. Yeah. And so, Why not just and, stick with phobia? I know. They had phobia. I mean, phobia is quite sufficient. Well, I would agree. And they felt at the time that phobia didn't get the attention of the medical community in the way anxiety disorder did. I don't know what their decision was and how they actually processed through that. However, it's clear that they changed their name for a reason the primary association that was dealing with these issues that people were having in their life used to be called the phobia association. And then they changed it to anxiety disorder. <laughs> it's really interesting, but I agree with you. I think your example 
of the two words, are you hurt or are you injured, is very equivalent to what we're talking about here. Are you anxious or do you have anxiety disorder? I think people need to decide and be real clear about that. Otherwise, they can get caught in the trap by getting everyone to buy into their excuses. And I see that happen. I saw it when I was teaching in the school. When a person said they had anxiety, all the teachers would perk up and say, oh, anxiety. Okay, we have to give them accommodations and we have to maybe talk to them, maybe take the load off them a little bit more, give them more time to take the test because they're anxious. We saw all these accommodations come into play in the last 20 years. And I'm not saying that that's not good. I mean, I'm just saying it is what it is. I mean, I would have loved back when I was ADD and ADHD and I was dyslexic. If they would have had Riddle in there, I would have been walking around with an IV drip of it all day long. But, but that was before my time. And I would have loved to have had accommodations back then that would have helped me get through the school and helped me get through dental school and medical school. It would have been a lot easier for me to have those accommodations. And I don't disagree with it. I just want people to be aware of it and right. they recognize that what they're really doing is, are we attempting to mitigate anxiety by pretending life is easier when life is really not easier? Are we developing snowflakes and people who are enabled and entitled instead of being able to handle the pressures and the rigors of life? I think there's some arguments that could be made that as long as we continue to allow people to use anxiety as an excuse, we're weakening their mindset and their ability to handle these challenges and the foibles of life that they're experiencing. And just like what you say with your kids, you want to let them go out and experience the experience, the experience of aggressive play. And when they get injured or hurt, you want to bring clarity to that so that you can educate them on what the difference is. And they get to see the dichotomy here, the difference between the two. And it's a learning teachable moment for them. And that's really what we're looking at here. Is this a learning teachable moment for us to split this word anxiety down and create two different amphoras for it, two different understandings for it, so we can properly process through it. Worry is probably the most common words when I hear people say, what is anxiety? And I find it interesting. There's a couple of quotes that I'll throw out at you. Joyce Meyer says, I used to worry about every little thing, trying to figure out every problem. Well, I realize now how foolish that was. I was no more in control of my life than the man on the moon. And I thought that was an interesting quote. And another one by Ralph Waldo Emerson, sorrow looks back. Worry looks around, faith looks up. Brian, any thoughts about those quotes as it applies to our discussion here around anxiety? I love that quote from Emerson. And the other quote is also interesting. Again, you're always getting tossed around in life, and you kind of have to then just choose how to respond with the things that you can control, and let go of the things that you can't control. I think a lot of wise people have found the joys of surrendering to the flow in life and not being overcome with anxiety when things don't make sense or you can't see through the fog and just trusting that, well, I'm either going to learn something or it's going to be okay. 
probably going to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> and that just goes back to our fear thing and anxiety and fear are closely related. Worry is a great amphora. You keep using this word amphora. We're really just talking about a container. An amphora is something that contains something else. So a word is a container of meaning. So we're just talking about the different container words that we use for feelings and emotions related to fear. That's why we keep using the word amphora, because we're talking about containers of meaning. And a word like anxiety contains a certain thing. And a word like worry is maybe a nuanced, slightly different thing. But they're right next to each other on the shelf. Yeah, and the the recognition that people have different amphoras for the same word. And I think that's important to recognizing that people have a different meaning for those words. I love the word love and how it has a different meaning for one person than it has for another person. Well, that's their amphora for the word love. And we also have that with the word anxiety. We have different meanings. And what's running through everyone's mind listening to this is they're running this through their filter from their definition of the word anxiety. Their amphora for that word really causes them to respond to this conversation because of the way they've defined that word. Yeah, the amphora is the word, and the meaning and the emotions are what's inside of that word for that person. Exactly. You know, we talked about worry is a big issue with anxiety, and I think a few other things that I wanted to recognize, and this is not an exhausted list. I mean, this is a list of some of the things that I just want to give people an example of things that we worry about. We also worry about taking on the burdens of our families and friends. We oftentimes find ourselves taking on other people's problems, which is a great thing to do, but recognizing that that can create anxiety for us as we take on the burdens of our family and our friends. We've talked about the meeting of expectations already, and we talked about not getting stuff done as a source of anxiety and feeling the pressure of not getting it done. But there's a couple other ones that I think really lead to anxiety, and it's comparison that we compare ourselves to each other can oftentimes be a source of anxiety for us. Our anger, our bitterness can be the source of anxiety for us. The fact that we're unforgiving of somebody for something they've done to us in the past and we keep playing that over and over again is a source of anxiety for us. Being in a state of victimhood certainly is a place where we can get anxious. And I think there's an absence of hope and faith that oftentimes will lead to anxiety, as we saw in Joyce Myers and Rolf Emerson's quote, that the absence of faith can be a source of anxiety. So I think it's important that we recognize the multiple facet of anxiety and how it's different for each of us, depending on the situation that we're in. However, there's hope. And I think one of the things we've always seemed to do in these podcasts, we always go to core beliefs that people have that can mitigate these anxious feelings. And we all know people who are very successful at mitigating anxious feelings. You know, they have things going on in their life and you look at them and they don't have any anxiety. Are you anxious about this? No, I'm not anxious about this. And you'd say, I'd be terribly anxious about this if it was me. But we know people who are not anxious. And what is present, what is in their core beliefs that maybe we could consider and look at 
that can start mitigating some of these feelings of anxiousness that we have. I've got a list of seven, and I think they're all worth considering. The first one is, I can't change the past. Let's talk about that for a second. I can't change the past. I think that's important because oftentimes we just live with the past. We can't really change it. But I think it's important we identify it. We address the elephant in the room, which might be a situation in the past that we don't want to talk about anymore. It's something that we are embarrassed about, something we feel bad about, something we feel guilty about. If we can't change the past, it's important that we address it and identify it as the elephant in the room and have conversations about it. I find there's two huge things that we can do to mitigate these feelings of the elephant in the room from our past. And the one is to reframe it, and the other is to have forgiveness. And to reframe it is to basically look back at the situation and say, I was a lot younger then. If I would have known what I know today, what I would have done in that situation would have been this. And knowing that you know this today, and knowing that you could handle it a different, that allows you to reframe it and look at it differently today from the lens of your mature self and have a different feeling about it. So if I now can look back and say, hey, if I knew everything I knew today, I would have done this. Does that help me mitigate some of my anxious feeling about that? Yeah, it does. So if I can go back and look at that and reframe it, I think that's an important aspect of recognizing we can't change the past, but we can reframe it. And the other thing that oftentimes in our past, there's issues of unforgiveness. There's unforgiveness toward a perpetrator, there's unforgiveness we have of ourselves. And I think coming to a place where we can forgive is an important aspect of this. And we've talked about forgiveness and unforgiveness in our previous podcast. As far as this first transforming belief, I can't change the past, but now I can reframe it and have forgiveness. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful belief because then you can let the past go and not carry the past into the future. You don't have to fear the past continually repeating itself. And you can look back and say, okay, I feel differently about that now. So I can feel differently about situations going forward. Yeah, that's a great example. The second transforming belief that I find helps mitigate anxiety is if my actions are rooted in good character, it will produce the best outcome, even when I can't see how. What I mean by that is, is instead of worrying about things and trying to control and figure it out, just practice being a person of good character, living a life of virtue and rightness, and things will take care of themselves. It takes being vulnerable. It takes being authentic. And when you're vulnerable and authentic, you can be courageous and bold. That is an important aspect of mitigating some of the anxiety we have. It's just doing the right thing and being willing to admit our weaknesses, admit our challenges, be authentic and real and courageous and bold. And then what's really equally important, two and three go together. My third belief is to collaborate with others who can be vulnerable and authentic with you and courageous and bold with you and you have trust in so finding people in your life who will collaborate with you and commit with you to have these transforming beliefs that will bring about a different feeling that you have and mitigate some of these anxious feelings that exist in you. 
So I think surrounding yourself with good, wise counsel, with people who will support you, and that's distinctly different with a codependent relationship because a codependent relationship is a friend that keeps you stuck, where wise counsel is that person that helps you get unstuck, and collaborating with them will help you with your unstuckness, and in doing so, anxiety can be alleviated. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in solidarity. It's really hard to find, unfortunately. It is. But it's really nice to have. If you're blessed with any form of solidarity or fellowship, oh, what a blessing. You can't overlook the value of some solidarity. And you can find it pretty quick, Brian, by being vulnerable and authentic, courageous and bold, and take a shot at it. And if the person doesn't respond, then say next, and find that next person that you're vulnerable, authentic, and courageous and bold with. And eventually you'll find a person that you can trust. And the reality is there's people out there you can trust out of your friend group, a psychologist, a minister, a prayer group. There's certain organizations and groups that you can join that would help you process through that, for sure. The fourth one I have is stop blaming and making excuses for yourself. And I say, well, what does that mean? Take personal responsibility for everything that happens. If you have the courage to take on the consequences of your mischief, that's awesome. Because then you can stop being anxious about it because, hey, I've decided I'm willing to take the heat. Instead of being worried about that, and feeling that you're going to be rejected, just take the heat and say, hey, what other people think of me is none of my business, and move on. The fifth one I have here is to be truly other-centered. When you're truly focused on other people and focused on the needs and serving others, instead of being mired in your own needs, I think that is a great way to move from a place of anxiety, is really start focusing on the needs of others. And I find that to be a very very fulfilling experience, one that oftentimes mitigates anxiety. The sixth one I talked about already, stop meeting the expectations that other people have of you. Be inspired by your own beliefs, values, and principles, because when you're meeting the expectations of others, you're really meeting the expectations of their belief, values, and principles. And I think it's really clear to distinctly recognize Am I operating under the beliefs, values, and principles of other people, or am I operating under my own beliefs, values, and principles? And I think it's important to identify that. So stop meeting the expectations of others and meet your own. And the seventh one is keeping yourself in shape. Physical exercise is a great way because it's very important that you keep your body strong and healthy because anxiety can make us lethargic. And it's really important we recognize how anxiety can cause us to have physical issues that also become a negative cyclic effect of having anxiety, having negative physical feelings, not being strong and healthy, and that also can just keep building on itself. So mitigating anxiety leads to a sense of contribution, peace and contentment and gratefulness. And it's hard to be grateful when your heart and mind are filled with anxiety. And that's my final thought. What's your final thought as we've talked about this today? My final thought is you got to try some of this stuff on. 
Well, I think it's important to try some of this stuff on and see how it works, see how it mitigates some of the anxiety or anxious feelings you're having. Recognize that there's a difference between anxiety and anxiety disorder and really find ways of taking on transforming beliefs that can lead to some benefits for you that you might not have expected previously. I want to thank you all for joining in to this conversation. Hopefully it wasn't too contentious for you. I'd love to hear from you if you felt it was and give me some feedback and we can certainly carry on this conversation with you if you'd like. So join us next week for Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week.